Hello everyone and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube, you can like and comment on our YouTube videos, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. Leave us a rate and review. And visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. So this week is very exciting. We took a break last week, but we're back. And it's exciting for many reasons. Firstly, it's part one of Barbenheimer. We will be reviewing both of these movies that everyone has been talking about. But secondly, and let's just say it's of equal importance, it's our four-year anniversary. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening and supporting and commenting and liking the videos. Um, We see you and we are so grateful for your support. So let's jump right into this because we're, we're tackling the beast, the big beast day. We are tackling Oppenheimer first. So here is your little synopsis if you haven't already watched or are planning to watch. So during World War II, Lieutenant Go- General Leslie Groves Jr. appoints physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer to work on the top secret Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb. Their work comes to fruition on July 16, 1945, as they witness the world's first nuclear explosion, forever changing the course of history. This movie stars Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek, Benny Safdie, and Kent Branagh, and it is it is, of course, directed by the magnificent genius, Christopher Nolan. Okay, so Dale, thoughts about this movie? And also, I just want to hear about your movie-going experience. That's a very important part of this Man, movie. like, I, I knew I was not going to be able to see it at, like, a regular time. You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 6 o'clock, those kind of things. So me and my friend said, oh, we're going to see it at 2. Um, mm-hmm. Like, 2, 2.30. And we get there. And, like, it's to the point where people who, like, went and decided to go see with their friends and did not reserve tickets. You know, I, I don't understand the point of re- reserving tickets. Like, our seats were stolen. So, <laughs> so we had to find, like, new seats, but it still worked out. We, were, we weren't in the front, but we were, like, you know that part, of, part in the front, like, the part where it's, like, four or five rows before the front? So you're, like, okay. you're in that walkway of when it first entered the theater. We were in that section. Yes. But... Uh, but other than that, it was a wonderful like viewing experience. Like no, like Nolan, I like this movie more than others. Um, of Nolan's work, the visual spectacle of it, um, mix of CG and practical effects that he used for a lot of the explosions and the depiction of um how Oppenheimer views the quantum realm, um, and those kind of things. Uh, those visuals like need to be done on IMAX like the fidelity and like the crispness of it so I, I can see why as a director why that has always been his chosen medium for him for his films like like all his movies like no I'm shooting an IMAX first and y'all can down convert this for other screens but like I want people to actually see every single raw detail and it 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 needed to be done because like he mentions um like him and him and um uh Killian Murphy. We'll probably talk about this later on, but he mentions um how 
after Danny, Danny Boyle is 28 days later when Killian Murphy was the lead character. And that was like the only other movie I think he's had a, a lead role in. Um, and he was like, he remembered seeing that from um, when he was doing Batman Begins and Killian actually t- uh, screen tested for um, Bruce before giving Scarecrow. Mm-hmm. And he said from then he was always captivated by uh, Killian's eyes, the way he looks. Like we see it now pretty much often. Like we look at Peaky Blinders and stuff. Way you can just stare like into your soul, and that like, and you and with this movie, you see the age and the fatigue of the stress of the Manhattan Project. Where there are scenes where he's in the in the bullshit ass uh, uh, court case or whatever, you see the stress on his face, and all those like little wrinkles in your face. Prosthetic team did a major job with their makeup. Like those details are not seen unless you're looking at the fidelity and visual quality that IMAX screens and filming really afford you. Yeah, very, very true. Um, so when I was just trying to get tickets for this, I it was like mostly packed and I saw an early screening. So in the morning, I saw that matinee screening and it was basically packed. Bef- and this was like, maybe a week out from it being released so i knew that it was like a bloodbath of like people just trying to see this movie in imax (laughs) but um yeah it was really i feel like because chris nolan is known for working with imax exclusively like that's his thing it really benefited because i've seen other movies in imax before and it doesn't really i guess whatever the impact of it was supposed to be hasn't really landed on me um like it was just loud like it didn't really bring a, a different element to like what the screening experience or the viewing experience should be but for this it like completely fit and it was like totally a part of like why you go to see one of these movies in the theater and on imax like it totally made sense um the theater was absolutely packed it was a comfy viewing it was it's a three-hour movie and if you are a regular listener, you know I don't like long movies. But I didn't really feel the runtime until like the third act. So, but for for like that's like two hours plus. So I think that they did a really good job in terms of like pacing and stuff. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But just in terms of like my first impressions, this is to me Chris Nolan's best film. This is his, was it magnet magnum opus? Yeah, magnum yeah. opus. Yeah. Um, everything that he has done in the past, and I think I've seen most of his movies. I can't say I've seen all of them. There was probably like his earlier, maybe like one or two of his earlier stuff that I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen Asomnia in maybe the first movie he did, but from Memento kind of onwards, I've pretty much seen most of his films. So like you can see the culmination of like all of his work in this, and. I have to just say, like, this was maybe one of the most incredible, like, stunningly visually stunning, but also emotional and, like, very important movies. Like, I don't know if you could say maybe a couple years ago that Chris Nolan was an important filmmaker in terms of, like, the subject matter. But but for this film, like, this couldn't couldn't be, like, more timely in terms of like what they're discussing and how important it is to like what we're living through right now. So I, I don't know. This was his best. I don't know. It's just such an incredible film. Like 
best film of the year for me, best film I've seen in a long time. Like, I don't think I've had any reaction to this or to a movie like this since I saw Dune, but even then, not to the same degree. Um, but because that's still science fiction, so you're still playing around with things that aren't. It has themes that connect to to real life, but isn't exactly real life. But because this is his history, it's a biopic, um, and it feels a little bit more relevant, a little bit more pressing. Um, but yeah, like stunning. Like I don't know. I, I I left the theater and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I think when like that happens, you know. It won't catch me like one of the smaller films. Like I didn't leave this film crying like I did with Past Lives, you know, because I just think that that's like a a taste thing. Like I just prefer smaller, intimate character study movies, and those things get to me a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like a big blockbuster, like the budget is astronomical. You're playing around with really complex subject matter, like this was the best of that 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 could have been like it there is i don't think anyone else could have done a movie like this on this scale except for chris nolan so i'm okay with using the genius title for him you know i know that people say that word gets thrown around pretty much a lot but like i think for him it's definitely fitting especially with this like this is this is like a groundbreaking like (laughs) when you're asking yourself like how did they even manage to get some of these shots like you know that they're doing something really special so yeah yeah it's it's his moniker as being a genius as a director he it's well deserved like he is mm-hmm. honestly one of the premier auteurs of our generation like for the past i want to say two decades like he's yeah he's slowly become like like that guy on top like this uh Bits and pieces and stuff were there from when he did uh, Batman Begins, but you know since then it's been he's been on like a nonstop roller coaster. Like his, like he said himself, his original impetus for doing those Batman movies is so he get funding for his other projects, and he has mm-hmm. he has been like, all right, I did that. I'm now I'm gonna do. I'm gonna show you what I can really do. And it's and the the thing with this movie is he said himself if you've um watched any of the behind the scenes stuff like their interview stuff like oh those were filmed before the strike um so they were fine Mm -hmm. but um he was like yeah like it's funny how this throwaway line in tenant like put something in him to go and like do a a whole movie on this person because he was just like when he did tenant it was like oh it's just a throwaway line correlating oppenheimer and the bomb toward now we can do like time travel shenanigans to then mm-hmm. go into like a full full blown movie is like astronomical. So you don't know though whatever you don't, and that's the thing I, I love with the artistic and creative experience. You never know what is going to expire you for your next project. Like it was, it was a sentence he had no intention of going beyond that to spark something in him that gave us this beautiful, beautiful like work of art. Yeah, like actually incredible. I think one of the things that. I love about and because I've been watching like Oppenheimer and Barbie interviews behind the scenes, blah, 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 for like two weeks straight now. Yeah. I've um I've learned kind of what were the influences for um these films. And um interesting, well, I guess it's not interesting because I think most people probably know this, that 
2001 A Space Odyssey was a huge influence on this film. Um, but when I was watching it, I was kind of understanding what was happening, mainly because of other films that didn't have, I don't think, and I'm not sure if it inspired his film or not, but The Theory of Everything starring, um, oh God, I don't know, I already forget his <laughs> name. My favorite, not my favorite, but Eddie, Eddie Redmayne. Mm -hmm. Eddie Redmayne playing Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, yeah. Um, yeah, that and The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, yeah, same. I had the same, uh, yeah. Um, who played Alan Turing. So having that, you know, those films kind of in the back of my mind really helped prepare me for, like, the intricacies of the mathematics. Not that I, I would ever understand anything on that level, but just in terms of, like, understanding the world of, like, being so intelligent that like you can operate on that level to discuss things like this where you are theorizing about it and you can actually practically make it happen i was like okay i feel like i have i had i did some homework for this you know like i didn't <laughs> i didn't come in blind which helped with the viewing experience i think one of the things about chris nolan's films is that people always feel like they don't they're kind of confused by it like it's just a lot of information and this one is too like it is a lot of information um and i guess i don't know if you need to do extra work before you go see it but i just know that watching those other films really helped me kind of understand the field that we were playing in not that i understood the specifics but just that i understood like okay this is the world we're operating in where you know very like genius level people are talking about things I'll never get, but I understand where they're going with it. And I can also understand emotionally how that can drive you because in the beginning of the film, um, Oppie Oppenheimer, I'm just going to call him Oppie because that's what they call him in the movie. Um, he is having like panic attacks, but he's also like seeing how certain things react together. And he's seeing that in a very visual way that like, I know when you're on a certain level of, operating in terms of like intelligence or creativity like you don't see things in the same way that other people do like you see things very differently and I think that they did a really good job at depicting kind of his understanding of like what these theories are these conversations that they were having at school and stuff like what that actually meant like he can actually see it visually um and they were able to kind of articulate that. And then you felt it because of, you know, the IMAX experience. Like you can see it and feel it as the character is experiencing it, which is one thing that Chris Nolan talked about a lot, where he was like, this is Oppenheimer's story and you're viewing everything from his perspective. I think he wrote the script in like the first person. So like, you definitely got that feel or experience. Uh, it's in, and I think that's one of the things I, I love about it. Like, even though people are going in and out of his life, the movie is honestly done through predominantly Oppenheimer's perspective, which I thought was so um, amazing because the only time the movie's not done from him is the movie's honestly about two contracting perspectives of one person. Um, of course, Oppenheimer, it, he's the, the first person stuff is from his point of view, talking about the whole experiment, that process, where he was coming from. But at the core, uh, Oppenheimer is not the one telling the story. Like, and I, I, I love that. Like, the person telling the story is um the guy who's trying, the guy who was in charge of the Atomic Energy Commission, the guy who yeah. had a hell of vendetta. 
um like he's literally the one telling the story and so that's why i I realized a lot of his scenes are in black and white or for another time period like he's actually the one telling the story so even though it's from Oppenheimer's perspective like all Oppenheimer's experiences of what he did it also comes down to this is also what um it's almost like it's giving you the actual view of what happened to Oppenheimer compared to what um Strauss is assuming Oppenheimer experienced because and that goes back to his uh, whole original slight with Oppenheimer he assumed like he said something to Albert Einstein and Mm -hmm. and from then on a vendetta was on like a, a, a man so petty he used to you know was throwing around his weight you know he with the atomic energy commission work with oppenheimer when every time oppenheimer would always counter what he said and say something different like he's he's like strauss was viewing it from a person like he even said himself i'm not a, um a physicist i know nothing of this but i'm still gonna mm-hmm. put my two cents in and force you to go my way and oppenheimer was always in his opposition and then from that on, it spilled over to, you know, using, you know, uh, Red Scare tactics or not Red Scare, but um, hang on, I forgot the name. Communist, the no, communist threat. Yeah, the, the communist threat mm-hmm. to, you know, because back at that time period, there were a whole bunch of like actors, you know, yeah. athletes, uh, people who, because that was going on, they they were being, uh, being tried in the House and Senate being potential not not nazi but uh communist conspirators like a mm. million like the red scare like a lot of famous and influential people lost like their livelihoods for that and so because he felt slighted he decided to weaponize that mass hysteria you know to basically defame oppenheimer so mm-hmm. yeah i love that robert Downey jr said that what chris nolan told him about the role was that he's amadeus Oppenheimer is Mozart so there's always that push of like I wish I was able to do something as incredible as you but since I can't I'm gonna try to swoop in and get power a different way if that means undercutting you or ruining your career and your reputation like I'm gonna do it so that was a really good like way to think about it and I was like oh yeah that's that is facts like (laughs) um that's exactly what's happening here and so I like that the film goes from him at school to teaching at Caltech, being on the Manhattan Project to inventing the atomic bomb, and then the fallout from that, and then to the court case with um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character. Um, so it is crazy that he was like directly, I guess, or maybe indirectly responsible for the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki which was a part, I think they were trying to end the Second World War because Japan was still fighting. Yeah. And just, you know, the extreme follow-up from that, like the fact that people have leukemia and stuff like that to this day because of that effect. Or maybe not to this day, but like in that area, like as soon as it happened, um, even the people whose homes weren't bombed still ended up dead because of that. Um, And I guess what was Oppie's like responsibility and how he felt about the fact that he was responsible for so many deaths. I think that was one thing that the character always grapples with kind of like I've invented this, you know, weapon of mass destruction that could literally end the world. And I did it for reasons that I thought were important, but now 
you know, by the time they dropped the bomb, the Germans had already surrendered. So it was like, that scene in the, when they're in Washington, when they have a list of the places where they could drop it, I was like, whoa, I don't, that's crazy. Like the, just the amount of like decision-making of like when you get to decide who lives and who dies, that's a very scary place to be. And I think that's probably why I like this movie a lot. It puts him, I wouldn't say as a gray area, but it's his position. Like they even talk about his um personal beliefs, like whether political or whatnot. He said, I, I don't focus just on one area. You kind of, to be a fully developed person and form your opinion on things, you got to pull from every, every source. Um, and, and you see that he's dealing with a moral quandary mm-hmm. as the, as everything evolves and everything goes on. And he tries to rationale it. Like if this is dangerous and bad, we're going to use it once. And then, you know, the good part of human beings and humanity and that natural impulse you think everybody has will tell everybody, okay, we will never do this again. And luckily it has like, you know, it has, but for the part that he did not expect is after seeing the spectacle of the devastating power that, uh, Batman little boy had on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, they went right into like, we want more as a threat deterrent. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to say, look, they know we have the capability and now they're going to see a production of theirs. It's, it, it's a no win scenario. And it, and it was always in the back of his head, knowing because he said himself during the calculations, like there is a potential chance that we destroy the world with one nuclear bomb. And his thinking is, Oh, if two get launched or three get launched, those, those numbers and those calculations get closer and closer and closer to 100. Even if two bombs go off, that the calculations wise that turns into one percent chance one percent chance is too much in his point of view and i and i think that's uh probably why i loved the um the friction between him and benny safety's character yeah. um where benny's like he like they're on two opposite of a scientific spectrum where uh because oppenheimer's um background is theoretical he still has uh we can do this but should we that's still there mm-hmm. and uh benny safety's like oh i can do this so i want to do it like the two opposite of ends of the spectrum when it comes to dealing with science and he's like yeah it's possible i can make this hydrogen bond i'm gonna do it and oppenheimer knowing how plentiful easy it is to obtain hydrogen compared to how highly other highly radiated materials is staunch against this because he knows once these people have a easier source to create these dangerous weapons he's it's going to get worse. And so he refuses. And that also creates Benny Safdie, his character slot against Oppenheimer. You tried to silence my work. Now I want to get you back as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved what Katie, Katie says, played by Emmy Blunt. Like, you're so smart, but you don't, you don't understand people. Like, and I think yeah. that's really true when it comes to these highly intelligent scientific people. And uh, they can't connect to certain people, which is funny because Oppenheimer apparently with this book and movie depicted Oppenheimer he's a womanizer. Like mm. he knew mm-hmm. how to he knew how when it came to women, that man was on it. But with all every other social interaction, he was just like blunt to the point. And if he was around nowadays, they'd probably say he was probably somewhere on the autistic spectrum because of those those personality quirks. 
Mm. But I, I I did love that, and I I, I did also his Oppenheimer as a person and how they depicted him. I love how they depicted his scientific world as art. Like I love those parallels in the beginning where he's looking at music, he's listening to music, he's looking at art, and we really don't really a lot of times understand the connection between art and science. Like mm-hmm. they kind of do this by each other back and forth. A lot of the technological just right now we have in this century we're inspired by crazy ideas that we've seen in movies and TV shows like our cell phones, the Apple Watch. These are like jokes or gags, like gadgets that were in old sci-fi movies like Get Smart and, and stuff like that. You know, so it, it's good to see that the symbiotic relationship that art influences science and science influence art depicted in Oppenheimer's early phases of his life. Yeah. And also just through Chris Nolan, who is an incredible artist, but also like can understand these physics stuff like on a real level. Like it is, I think that that's one of the things that's always interested me because it's like, there's always, there seems to be like a split between like the scientific community and the arts community. Like you can either be in one or the other camp when they are so closely related. And, um, in all of the movies that I've mentioned before, plus this one, music, art was a huge part of these geniuses' lives. Like, you know, that was massively a part of their lives. That's how they, I don't know. I guess it was like a touchstone of like understanding what they were thinking about or the theories that were that they were studying. Like it all kind of came together. So yeah, I think that's a great point. It's like, it's all related. But I I really did like the portrayal of Oppenheimer, especially because, you know, when you do biopics and stuff, there's a tendency to gloss things over and make things like a, like, a lot nicer than they actually were because, you know, you don't want to offend people's families or their legacy. or blah. And I really like that they were like straight up like, no, he was cheating on his wife. Like, <laughs> and he was not only cheating on his wife with, Florence Pugh character he was cheating on her with somebody else's wife like he was kind of a mess but also okay so here's um I'll wait I'll wait I'll wait I'll wait let me just stay on this point so yeah I, I like that they were honest about that and honest about his moral standing about like what he did because on because one conversation that Benny Safdie and um Oppenheimer have or Killian have is that you know he's like well I never know where you stand on things like you're never really for one thing or really against another thing like you're just and I think people like that make other people uncomfortable because they're like well I don't know like what you're about so I can't so there's like an inherent untrustworthiness about that person and maybe that was the reason why it was easier for him to turn on him. Also, Benny Safdie being in this movie, yes. Like, I I love that two movies I saw this year, he was in it. Like, he is an incredible actor, and I am so happy that he's in things. Like, he's an incredible director and an incredible actor. Yes. Put Benny Safdie in everything. Like, that's how I feel. Um, back to my point. When there's the scene where he's watching the um footage from Hiroshima and everyone in the room is like like oh god it's like it's really really bad 
I think in his actions where he says, no, we don't want, we don't need any more of these weapons out there. He is making a stance. Even if he never verbally says, I think that what I did was a mistake because the two best scenes in this movie for me was one, the Trinity test. I think everyone can pretty much agree that that was exquisite filmmaking. Like that was an incredible thing that you saw, but also the speech he gives afterwards in the gym. Um, when everyone's like rallying and really excited. So when the bomb actually goes off and it's a back, it's a close up of um, Killian's face. I immediately felt, and I feel like this is what the character was feeling was like, Oh God, what did we do? Yeah. Right. Because it's like, it worked great, but at what cost? Uh, this is really bad. Yeah. At what cost? And then in the second scene, when he's giving the speech, the patriotism that everyone's displaying is so rampant and like misplaced because they don't know what this really means. They think, okay, yes, we're going to win the war, America, let's yeah. go. But then it stops and you see that you hear the screams of the people who are being, who have been burned, who whose houses have been like completely decimated. You see people getting sick because of the radiation. Like you see like the war zone that this place is because of what he invented and because of what they were doing there. And that was just such a incredible scene to me because it's like, again, and there's a whole thing there's a quote in there, that Sanskrit quote about like, have playing become God or destroy like, the worlds. Yes. Yeah. That one. Yeah. Where it's like, when you play God and literally like, you, you what you're able to do because you are so brilliant has so much human cost it's like that really weighs on you and i think that's what killian was talking about in the interviews where he was saying that like physically he becomes completely like you know withdrawn he becomes a lot more thin depressed because it's like the weight of that choice is weighs so heavily on him and i i do think that's why i probably like the scene with him and um Gary Oldman who's playing Truman if I remember correctly mm, which is weird mm -hmm. because history and that scene kind of peels back like I think now nowadays we have a more honest and objective opinion on how US American presidents are depicted because the world of social media and 24 hour news cycle and whatever we have a more human viewing of presence like Truman if you in history class he's this jovial guy he's always smiling in his photos you know but I like Nolan's interpretation of Truman because we don't really know who's, how Truman was. Everybody who kind of knew Truman, like, they're, they've been dead for, like, the past, like, couple years, like, mm -hmm. like, the last, like, couple decades. So I do like how in that, that conversation with him at the White House where Truman's like, oh, we, we want more. You, we need you here. You know, he's like, I have blood on my hands. Like, mm -hmm. like the, that and then Truman's like, oh, they don't even know who the fuck you are, basically. They think I did this. If you're their father talking, no, they, they say this is Truman. Truman dropped those bombs on us. And he just mm -hmm. hands him a paper, a paper towel and says, get that crap and be out of here. You know, I, I, I love that because you see, because uh, Oppenheimer was aware of the, the repercussions and damage his actors had. And like you mentioned the rabid patriotism in the scene when they tell him about the bomb working sexually. I do love the, for, the, for, the forebodingness of it. Like, the initial setup before they test the bomb the day before, like the 
uh, this is Ludwig is amazing. Like Ludwig is my dude when it comes to his scores. Like, like I've I've been on Ludwig's is my dude. You know from Community Gambino days, Charles Gambino days. Mm. You know he's on a roll with these movies. Like he's he's on that next. You know Danny Elfman, John Hughes level of being that guy when it comes to his scores. Yes. But like I love in the there's a scene like where it's the day before the test and it's early sunrise and Oppenheimer's like looking out at the at everything and when the scene comes in all you hear is air raid siren like that foreboding is, it brings you in and the air raid siren just moves right into like a string orchestra and I was like oh that is like a beautiful like it's like that eerie sense and then that melancholy foreboding like Ludwig does it a lot with this movie where he takes sounds and elements like the like the the feet stomping and that mm. that whole thing then you know the subtle switch from like in that patriotic scene where these these laughters switch to tears and all that stuff and you see everything like like he sees his impact happening like these people are celebrating they're jubilating they're they're crying years of joy but in his um Oppenheimer's mind he sees it as like his, his sadness and hysteria and everything so I, like. This like this movie like is so like like so amazing on something like the visually mm-hmm. like, performances like I just said Ludwig like Ludwig really set the theme, scene and a lot of these scenes the way he 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 uses music like it's the whole mm-hmm. the whole movie like has this like melancholy sound with a little bit of joy sprinkled in but those mm-hmm. joyous instruments and notes still sound very mournful throughout the whole mm. thing like every moment of Oppenheimer's life like like you'll hear a flute and you think oh this is gonna be amazing but the flute is playing mournful music like I love mm-hmm. I love that so much yeah and just to pivot to the technical aspects of this film sound I was listening to someone else talk about it the sound and the sound um editing or was it sound yeah it was the sound and sound editing sorry sorry mixing I think is what they mixing, were referring yeah. to yeah. They were also talking about the editing by an incredible female editor. Uh, I think her name is Jane or Jessica. I'll find it out. But she is, the editing in this movie is phenomenal. Like, I get that Trinity scene, I was tense. I had the most anxiety. I was like, holy God. Like, I already know what's going to happen, but still, I was like on the edge of my seat. Um, but in terms of like sound, like, this is winning the Oscar for sound. Yeah. Like I, Dune hasn't even come out yet. It yeah. doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> like it's 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 winning. It's winning. I, I I like the evolution. Like um, because if you like if you talk to people and they say they're like, real explosions, like they always say the sensation in an explosion when your ears are ringing or you go dumb, you 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 go deaf. You can't really hear anything for a while. Mm-hmm. So I love that artistically. It's kind of hard to communicate that in a visual medium as far as films. But I do like the last mm-hmm. couple years. They've taken that influence from people who like experience explosion and saying, Yeah, when the these explosions happen, you lose deaf. You'd like you go deaf. And artistically they've been taken they from Star Wars, you know, where she drives her plane into the other ship and it's just silence to uh, this movie in Oppenheimer to even some segments in the last James Bond where stuff blew up and you know, he's at a graveyard and they, like they're using that real world um loss of sound to communicate mm-hmm. like a loss like uh character wise like that real world yeah. element is added and it's now become a character because that silence in the bomb like you can also see realize 
that's also Oppenheimer now reckoning with right. what is to come, you know? Right. And I loved that. Oh, I just love how everything was just done because music is playing throughout this entire film, except for that part. Yeah. And I, and after a while I was like, wow, this score has been going on for a long time. Like there hasn't been any breaks in it except for that moment where it goes completely silent. And I was like, oh, so good. That's so good because you feel every, you're just like hearing people breathing. Yeah. And I was like, incredible. Like it makes so much sense. Like, <laughs> like maybe if someone did that in another film, it wouldn't have been as impactful. But in this one, it was like perfectly, it was perfectly designed. Um, I just want to shout out the editor of this film, Jennifer Lame. Mm -hmm incredible incredible lady um but yeah the and, and and obviously the cinematography by hoyt van hoytema who literally like hoisted an imax camera on his shoulder every single day to get these shots like the dude is on the level of deacons like like i think we i think it's safe to say that because everything that he has put his hands on yeah has been incredible the, the those three like Hoyt, um, Hoyt, Nolan, Ludwig—they are like the heir parents for like, they're they're the dudes like you know your Spielberg, your your, your Spielberg, your Scorsese's, you know, you're like, oh that's Nolan mm. now, you know, Hoyt, yeah. is, is Deacons, you know, you know mm -hmm. Ludwig is now Elfman, you know, he's there, they are like on that level now. Yeah, yeah so. they are. Um, but yeah, so. Everyone who walks away from this film is going to know it's a visual masterpiece. Like, that's not, that's undisputed. Um, turning back to the performances, though, Killian Murphy yeah. in this role, I just, phenomenal, like, absolutely phenomenal. And because the film rests solely on him for the majority of it, um, you really can't screw it up, right? Because it's like, it's on you to do it. And everyone who worked with him on this film, who, and this cast is incredible. Um, they were like, he is like, he was our North Star. Like he was, inc he held everything together. He was so phenomenal in the role. And you have like Oscar winners and Oscar nominees talking about Killian this way, who's worked with Chris Nolan for 20 years, but this is like the first time he's been able to have a lead role in one of his films. Like everything in his eyes, it just says it in the eyes. Like the thousand yard stare is like, that has to be his signature, right? Like. <laughs> like Trillian like Trillian's one of those actors so I I've always I told you like I love my my love of those micro expressions or details that we give mm -hmm. as people like even though he's not like Scarecrow and Batman you know like when he's talking interrogating like those guys in Arkham and he looks and he just gives them a look like like though like Trillian is on it like I'm I'm, I'm like it's I find it really un weird like after doing 28 days like and then showing up repeatedly in like oh Nolan's work, like and mm -hmm. then getting Peaky Blinders like this is now his first like role mm -hmm. like because those elements of being an amazing actor were there from him just playing yeah. like five like two minutes three minutes of screen time in the other Batman movies like they were always there like always yes. there. Um, another performance I'm astounded with, Josh Hartnett. Like let's be honest, like if you're a '90s person, like. Josh Hartnett, Josh Hartnett for a while was supposed to be that Hollywood it boy in that Brad Pitt vein, 
you know, along with Matt Damon, those guys. He was supposed to be on that level, and then something happened. Like, he, t- like, mm-hmm. and then he did, um, what did he do? he did the other day? The Fortune movie with, um, Jason Statham. Did that, playing the mm-hmm. hyper-realistic version of a Hollywood person. Then he does this. Like, he, like, is a really good character actor. Unexpected. And I think, like, people were saying, like, how, um, The Whale, uh, reinvigorated, um, as or Brendan. Brendan's career, I do think this role was gonna probably reinvigorate Josh Hartnett's uh, career because I forgot going when I saw him like, oh, Josh Hartnett can really act. Like mm-hmm. he was like at the for a time he was like doing these rom com stuff, kind of like Chris Evans used to do before um, Marvel and he and doing Snowpiercer. Like he was doing stuff like that, but he never got the opportunities to go to the next level. So I do think now, like the midpoint of his career with these two roles he's probably going to get more opportunities and i also loved casey affleck i do think between the two of them casey might be the better actor between him and um um ben but uh ben might be the better (laughs) and might be the better director but i love casey's just he comes on the scene and he's playing the the super aggressive military general who like will even torture people and mm-hmm. we only know he t- he'll torture people because um, Matt Damon says it. But even without Matt Damon saying it, in the way he moves and emotes, like he's really snake-like, and you feel mm-hmm. a real uneasiness when you look at him on the screen. And like, yeah. wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, the, I love this cast so much because even the people who kind of popped up kind of out of nowhere, was a delightful surprise. Like, not President Fitz being in this movie. I said, yeah. what are you doing here, Fitz? Yeah. <laughs> I love that he was in this. Um, jo- um, Jason Clark, who's another really great British actor, I love that he was in this movie. He was, like, the main interrogator during all of those scenes. Um, again, Gary Oldman showing up. He played, what was it? That man who I don't... Truman? The British Prime Minister. Oh, no, he Oldman? Yes, he... Yeah, he played, he played, um, why did I can't, I'm confusing, why I can't remember his name. Ugh. The British Prime Minister, who was involved with all this stuff. He, uh, It'll come to you. My brain is going through his <laughs> right now. Why don't we um, both are like, I know who he is. Wow, I feel so stupid, the name, and it's, the face is there, fat old dude. The face is there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But no, all men with U.S. president was played Truman. He also played the other guy. That's what I'm saying. He played. That's when he, he won his Churchill? Oscar from. Yes, thank you. And he played oh, Churchill in a different movie. I'm thinking. I'm only thinking movie. this movie. No, yeah. in a different. In the Darkest Hour, he played Churchill, and now he's playing the U.S. President Truman. I saw him. I remember watching that scene and being like, "Is that? No, that's not. Is that Gary Oldman?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh, of course he's in this. Like, why wouldn't he be? Like, I just, I like that." Even the people who weren't like main characters, they were still really great actors who just kind of popped in to do their little bit and then popped out. Dane DeHaan as well. Dane DeHaan. Playing um, his and I was, And I was like, these are guys who I watched growing up. So I was like, this is so cool that they're in this movie. Like, I was so pleased that like, like these really, like guys I was watching when I was like 12, 13 was like, they're in a Chris Nolan movie now. Like, that's really dope. That's I think that's the, that, cool. my experience with these actors. Like, like, and everybody, like, 
discredited him, I think, after all of Learn City of Thousand Planets, which I kind of enjoyed. But this show is um, like, and also the weirdness of Spider Man 2, Amazing Spider Man 2. But this proves yeah. like he can actually. He's great. Like, that uptight, stick in the mud, mm-hmm. like hyper conservative soldier who's yeah. like, I don't like you. I'm going to do what I can to defame you. Like, ugh, wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Um, Matt Damon did Matt Damon, you know? Yeah. He yelled and roared, and yeah. and I was fine with it. I actually I liked I liked him a lot in this. Um, Robbie Malik didn't have much to do. He only had like a couple I stuff mean, at the end, and I was like, mm, I feel like we could have used Rami a little bit more in this. Well, with Rami, with with Rami, it was like he pops up uh, two times before the end of the movie. And you're like, oh, I'm waiting for Rami to show up and say something, and mm-hmm. then you're like, well, fuck. I guess he doesn't have a speaking role. This movie. he's just gonna be the guy's assistant who just stands yeah. there in the background, and then he pops up at the end. And then he yeah. starts. I wish Robbie, Rob, he probably, I wish he, you know, probably got more to do, but. Um. Yeah. But I mean, if you get the call to be a part of the movie, like you're going to say yes, regardless, <laughs> regardless of the role. So I get it. Um, Emily Blunt, I thought was really strong. I just don't feel like she had a lot to do at the, in the third act mm-hmm. um, during the court case. But like for most of it, she wasn't really doing much like she did make me laugh because she was like a wine mom who like hated her kids. I thought that was hilarious. I don't know if that was intended, but I laughed at it. Um, <laughs> she played that so well, but she was also like the backbone of like the family and was trying to keep things together. Um, not upset enough for me after finding out that your husband had this affair. Um, I would be more mad, but that's just a personal thing. She handled it in her own way. The character or the woman, Kitty, handled it in her own way. So whatever. Um, but still a great performance. I think she did a, fa- a fabulous job. She's always been a great actress, so that wasn't a surprise to me. Florence No, she said, she said, um, you already told me that you had the affair and I got over it. But now, like, I think I love her... Because she was mad about the fact that like they were talking, they about were talking it about publicly. it publicly, and he and his whole thing, she, her whole thing was, I love her as a strong, uh, like Emmy Blunt always plays is like, if you look up strong female character her, in Google, her picture's gonna come up. Like as every role she plays, strong female character, um, like, she's she basically says, you you why don't why won't you fight for this like you know what they're doing and you refuse to fight you're going along with their game knowing you're gonna lose why don't why don't you fight back and i think that's a good thing like why their relationship probably worked beyond his like uh i like i love you but i need her like i love you know florence Pugh's character but i need kitty like kitty's my anchor keeps me straight which is a horrible way to view relationships but for some people it works you know, I find it emotionally manipulative, but if it works for you, it works for you. But it works because, like we talked about with Oppenheimer and not really knowing people, she is the person saying, no, you need to get stuff done, which I love there. And it showed they didn't have really, like, a, a they had a partnership. That's the best way I could probably describe their relationship. It was a partner. It was two people who understood each other. Like, she knew what she wanted out of life. This is like her fourth marriage. She's like, I'm, I'm done with the bullshit. I, I need you to X, Y, and Z. And he was like, Okay, I understand. You know, so yeah, I'm not. I guess I'm, I'm not like, I don't love the ethics of that, but yeah. I understand that it was what it was. Like this was, these are real people yeah. who lived, and this was their relationship. So I think within the constraints of the time period, 
she was as strong as she could be in under that circumstance of being like basically a housewife because that's essentially what she was um but also like being a sounding board for him throughout the trial and all the other stuff um Florence Pugh's character is so I'm I don't know how I feel about it I feel like well, the thing is that Chris Nolan told her that she it was going to be a really small role. So, like, but she was going to do it anyways because Chris Nolan, you're not going to yeah. say no to the opportunity, right? Um, but I, what I don't love is the fact that for most of her screen time, she's nude. Um, I wasn't, like, a huge fan of that just because I feel like there, I feel like there was a way that they could have done it, which would have been a little bit more interesting. I think the only part of like, I guess the nudity, the intimacy of this of that scene or of those scenes was when he's in the um when he's talking to all of the investigators in that little room, and it cuts to him being nude, and then it cuts back to them, and it cuts back to her being on top of him, and she's like looking into Emily Blunt's eyes, like. To me, that was very good because yeah. I was like, okay, we're playing around with some surrealism. Yeah. Like, we're doing something a little different. I was like, okay, I wasn't him, expecting him this. That's really naked, cool. You know, Literally vulnerable, vulnerable you know? Yeah. I was like, I like how this is used. The other scenes, though, I wasn't a huge fan of it. I was just kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's Florence. Like, to me, there is so much we could have done with her. I kind of feel the same way about her that I do with Rami Malek, where I'm like, we could have used them more because they're such exceptional actors. But I think for what it was, the situation, what, the situation that it was, the character that she's playing, I guess it made sense that she wasn't really going to do anything else other than just be his mistress. So that's fine. I just, I don't know. Because the way that it was built and talked about, it seems like Florence was going to be like a huge character. That's what I was going into the movie, yeah. assuming. So the fact that she wasn't, I was like, oh, okay, well, fine. <laughs> I don't know. I wanted more, I guess. It's apparent that based on how both his relationships, both these two women contrast, that they were two very important people in his life. You know, mm -hmm. socially, the one who would teach him to fight for stuff and not to back down, you know, that kind of thing being, um, was, you know, pity. And then Florence's character, um, was kind of more an intellectual equal, you know, like, 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 like they, the first, her first introduction, Nolan kind of interplays the intellectual, like, curiosity side and mixes it with intimacy, which, thought depiction and use of it was, you know, like, kind of off a bit because the fact that, you know, the line most prominently attributed to Oppenheimer, I am death, destroy the worlds, you know, is used in a sex scene. It's kind of like mm. diminishing the importance of the fact that those words and knowing he's the father of atomic bomb, how important they are, you know, so you just use it as a one-off in a sex scene kind of feels kind of eh. But... Mm -hmm. I do love the enjoyment, like, enjoyment of, yes, they're naked, but all their, like, post-sexual activities evolve into, like, an intellectual back and forth. And the culmination of their relationship was, I want you, but I cannot be with you. You know, some, like, those are really real experiences. People are two ships happening at night. Like, we would be perfect for each other, but 
I can't be with you. So I do love that they, res they reserve it just for we're both intellectual equals. You you force me to think of things in a different way. Like their initial conversation is, oh, I'm a communist. He goes, no, I kind of take a bit from here and here to make the other thing. And she's like, no, you have to make a decision, which goes back to him being a person who kind of plays it down the middle until it's too late. So I wish we had got more time with those two women who influence his character as a person a lot. Yeah, me too. I do wish we had more of them. And I don't know. It's just, it, there's something in it that it's also like the youngest person who's on cast and who's also a woman is the one who's naked. I don't know. I mean, they both were, but it's, bit. it's, you know, and they they both were, but you know how Hollywood views nudity and women, you know, and sexuality, you know, so. Yeah, yeah I mean, but he wasn't really showing anything. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like, it was... <laughs> yeah. so it's just, that's, and that's just, a, that's a me thing. I'll get over it because okay. ultimately I think that, I mean, in the scenes that she was in, she did do a great job as playing this like kind of disturbed, but like very intuitive, like young person who comes into his life and offers him something and he wasn't able to be there for her i mean i don't i don't know how um, if she was young because when they meet they're at a party for teachers like people who work at the school so you know what i mean like in real life like she's the youngest person on the staff on, on the cast that's what i mean oh no i was talking about her her as a character like the, oh, the young okay. person yeah I, i'm talking about like the fact that she is the youngest person <laughs> on this cast <laughs> And she is the one, because, you know, of course, like, um, you don't see Emily Blunt naked, you just see her naked. So I think that's, again, an interesting... It's just... I think one of the things, one of the reasons why I love um, the other movies that I mentioned so much, like The Imitation Game and The Theory of Everything, is because the women in those films are very important. Like, they're important to the plot. Yeah. Like, they're not only just important to, like, one of the characters. Like, they are essential in the moving of the story. Yeah. Which is why I really enjoyed those films, because it's not, like... Even though in one of the films, it's Stephen Hawking's wife, but in The Imitation Game, like, Keira Knightley plays a scientist who worked on breaking the code to win the war. So, like, she was very involved in, like, every almost every single scene. And I thought that that was really great because a lot of the times in these kinds of stories where it's about like this great invention, you know, it's, it's about the great men who do the great work and the women oftentimes get left behind in that story, even though they are as important. And I think they, I think they've had a young woman who was like a part of their team who was kind of in it. You saw her kind of first throughout yeah, the like film, she but she, the, it like, wasn't really, yeah, she was, she shows up, but she's not like, she shows up like three, one of the three times. She shows up three times, and she only has one speaking line. Yeah, and she's also a fellow scientist. And she's yes. like, "Oh, I don't think you should be there." And the conversation's like, "Why? Oh, because the radiation might affect your your reproductive organs." And she's counters the male scientist. What about you? You've been there longer than I have, right? Working with it, mm -hmm. and then you don't see or hear from her again, right? You know, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just I kind of wish that even though the women give great performances because they're great actors and they have an important role in Oppenheimer's life, I wish that there was more of a focus on the women who were probably involved in the creation of this atomic bomb, but who might have not gotten their credit because, you know, history didn't care about them or didn't care to talk about them or write about them. So, yeah, it's just one of those blind spots 
in history overall, but also when you're making films like this, where it's like so easy to focus on, like you know, at, the great at, men. At least if the scientist that that um woman or a scientist who just happened to be a woman, even if she wasn't going to be featured prominently, like those two women, his two love interests who were important to him. You know, he's distraught when she finds out she commits suicide. You know, they're doing the, the, the bullshit kangaroo court. And he's like, no, I know, I know Kitty. She's going to come. She's a fighter. She, that, that's her. Like, like that immense amount of faith that he has in her. And then she takes the, the lead prosecutor to task. You know, like those two women should have been like more screen time. So, yeah. And the, the thing is, the movie was already three hours. And, yeah. And, and and the thing is, and this is a part I want to get. Um, this movie doesn't feel three hours because no. well, this movie is a movie that draws you in so much. I do think those few added scenes wouldn't have made a difference because knowing how Nolan is and knowing the the writing behind it, they would have been impactful, and nobody would have noticed if this movie probably hit like three fifteen. You know. Like the mm. movie is so engaging and grossing for the whole three minute span that you don't even really know that it's three hours long until you walk out of theater yeah. and like always oh, dark as hell, <laughs> you know. Hmm. Um, I felt it in the third act. I was like, okay, because the third act is also it feels like a different movie because now you're shifting to Downey's perspective and what's going on with the case. Because more, because the first two has we're focusing on Oppenheimer and creating the atomic bomb. But once we move past that, once it's already happened and we're now in the court case, it kind of does feel like a court drama, actually, rather than like a experimental thing that we had going on over here. Um, and at that third act, even though it was still good, I was still enjoying it. I definitely was just like, okay, yeah, now I, I'm starting to feel. I wasn't feeling it before. I was very in it. And then I was like, okay, it's it's three hours. I feel that. Um, but lastly, speaking of Downey, just the conversation around his performance specifically is like he's gonna win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, and I'm like, I can yeah. see it. Yeah, because he did an incredible job. Like at first, I'm like, I didn't really, it didn't click to me that that was him. Like I had to keep, like it kept flashing in my mind, like this is Robert Downey Jr. This is Iron Man, and he's like so good like just incredibly good in this role and i really love this for him like i just love that he's able to like exercise those muscles as an actor and really do something different and serious and cool and like that switcheroo that i wasn't expecting because unless you know the history of these two men like you probably wouldn't even know that they were adversaries at all so like and at first I thought he was trying to protect him or at least distance himself from Oppenheimer. And then it turns out that like this whole thing was about Oppenheimer and he was trying to get back at him and also gain power. And I was just like, okay, great. Like that's so, I love, I love these kind of like drama, like messiness, like let's be petty. Like I actually really enjoy that. <laughs> so I thought he did such a good job. And because Robert Downey Jr. is always very charismatic, he kind of brought that to this role and yeah i just he was maybe my favorite part of it in terms of like performances like i kind of lived for everything that he was doing just because i'm like oh because it, it again once he said it i was like that's exactly what it is it is that 
Mozart Amadeus. That's what it is. And like once that set in my mind, I was like, yeah, he it elevated the performance for me because I was like that. It's like these two people in this like chess game of like, how do we get ahead? Like, how do we figure this out? We have two completely different outlooks on like what this means. And the fact that he just wanted more weapons and like he was very conservative and like he only cared about like America American achievement. He could care less if anybody else died. Like that was very cool. I was like, I love that and I love that he did it with such conviction. Like he totally believes in what this man like stood for. Not stood for, not in terms of like this is what Robert thinks, but in terms of like as a performer, he completely committed to that stance which made it so much more believable and yeah he might he might be my favorite performance of the whole movie i thought he was really good and i really hope that even if he doesn't win the oscar that he's at least involved in the conversation like at least he gets a nomination for it because i think he definitely i think people forget how immensely talented robert downey jr is an actor and he is honestly the one like you know and that was probably the impetus for having be Iron Man, like that charisma, that natural charm. You need somebody like that to be at the front and your um, your statement maker of your cinematic universe. Like as an actor, his his credentials cannot be denied. But the the issue was, you know, the social side, like his drug history and stuff like that. Like before he did Marvel movies, he did, of course, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and he mm-hmm. did like. Um, the, the, shaggy, shaggy, the, the shaggy dog for like Disney and like he said the shaggy dog was really a movie that could prove like oh he's fine he's no longer on drugs he's a reliable actor and then you know mm-hmm. that evolved into what we see now um, and he said it himself like somebody was asking for tips on like acting this is when he was like doing Iron Man somebody said I don't know kid I just put on a, a suit and a CGI stuff I just put on a metal suit and that's it and he's like I, I don't get the chance to with the Marvels to showcase a lot of my acting chops and post then, you know, he's now getting that opportunity once again, which is the opposite from his Marvel co-stars who have their contracts set up in a way where they could go and flex their independent muscles when they felt like mm-hmm. it. But he was so important to the franchise where he couldn't, he wasn't given that latitude, like, you know, so. Yeah, just great. Just great all around. Again, I think that this is, I have nothing else to say. Well, we could probably talk about this for like another hour, but to wrap it up, (laughs) I just, it's so, it's just, the more I think about it, the more I love it and I want to see it again. Um, And I think that the fact that he was so resistant to use CGI and he wanted to do this as practically as possible using like miniatures and stuff like that was like, it just shows that you can make a, a, a movie off the scale <laughs> in a way that's like authentic. Yeah. Um, completely auteur driven and just brilliantly. Like when you have a good team around you, when you have great actors, like that's really what is drawing people back to the box office. And I'm hoping that Hollywood is, is watching these movies, both of these films, Barbie and Oppenheimer, to see like what people want. <clears throat> is originality they don't want even if it's ips that we know or it's based on a real person like having the director in control of the film and having it be driven by their vision like that's what people that's what's drawing people to the to the theater yeah. so like that's what's giving you your box office so just like pay attention to that 
because people are so excited about both of these movies like this is the first time in a long time where it's like been going to the movies has been like an event that people were excited for since like i don't know avengers endgame like that was a, like the last time people actually cared um so i hope that they're taking notices of what's happening here because i think it's really important especially going forward like this is the brightest spot in the dumpster fire that's been like Hollywood imploding <laughs> over the last couple of mo- months. Like this is giving all of us some type of life to like extend us to fall. Like it's been, it's been rough out here in these streets y'all. Okay. So like, I'm very grateful for Nolan just for that. Look, this, this too, at least this experience being Oppenheimer and Barbie, it reminds me a lot of, um, coming out of you know lockdown and stuff and anticipation for um top gun reminds me Mm. reminds me of that um yeah this movie deserves all the praise and adulation it is honestly an early contender for best picture oscars um oh yeah definitely definitely obviously in a contender julia murphy best all lead actor role robert Jr. best supporting actor um Mm. sound design mixing um uh visual effects you know cinematography all of that mm-hmm. um best original score, score. yeah all of that i'd like and those are like the three major categories like those are the major categories i see this movie being in um of course mm-hmm. no one will be in there for the director category but yeah it, it's yeah. yeah it's so good yeah um moving on from that of course just briefly covering the amazing weekend that it has been so far of course, to go over a bit of the uh, box office stuff. Of course, you know, both Op- we mentioned a while ago, Oppenheimer, just, you know, Bob- Barbaheimer, um, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so Barbie opened up to $162 million. Oppenheimer came in second with $182 million, um, which is amazing for these two movies. Um, there were a lot of conversation about barbie and how it's a major blockbuster film um mm-hmm. majority targets women um you saw we saw we brought it up on our social media platforms with um uh one also a writer talking about you don't see movies targeted toward women we counter like you know with um woman king that was a major blockbuster film that would was targeted toward women with a lead a female lead of course people have also mentioned you know color purple with a predominantly all female cast um but if you prefer to have blinders on when it comes to you know predominantly just women of a certain phenotype you're gonna put blinders on and ignore a lot of those projects like we had you know girls trip you know of course we've had uh joyride with it all all asian cast hell we've had uh crazy rich asians you know well as a female a woman targeted uh movie which did amazingly well so there are amazing films now covering a broad spectrum of people like uh like greta herself with barbie a lot of her work a woman-centered woman targeted do well across all spectrums so, but if you decide to have these binders on you're not gonna you know catch that but um so yeah but back to barbie's numbers and Oppenheimer's numbers a historic um moment like barbie's like outdone the top like outdone other three movies that have done the best over this year have been Super Mario, um, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and Guardians of the Galaxy, and Ant-Man. Um, and as far as what is earned on opening weekend, it's out those and those expectations. 
Um, of course, then you have Oppenheimer, which came in second. And that's due because the nature of the story where people think it's mostly going to focus on the bomb instead of the person, where people are like, hey, go see a happy movie first before you go see a sad movie. But I didn't really, I didn't really, I didn't, and knowing what we know about Barbie, like, spoiler, Barbie Barbie is like a real existential crisis movie. <laughs> and then Oppenheimer mm-hmm. is like, you, you, I think you messed up, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that was probably why people assume, oh, it's Barbie, it's gonna be fun, see it first, and then see Oppenheimer, so that way, you know, you're happy before you're sad. But yeah, so it's a good uh, time for movies. You know, beyond the the strike um issue currently happening, um, of course to briefly go over the top ten for the past weekend. Of course, I mentioned number one and two of uh, our Barbie and Oppenheimer. Number three right now is Sound of Freedom. It debuted last about it debuted. Uh, it's his third week out. Um, the issue with that movie though is it's kind of fairly divisive because it's really it speaks uh a base uh they wear red hats and stuff like that who kind of take stuff out of context and um they're saying it's there's a plan for you not to see the movie because the thing with this picture is a lot of the tickets for this movie are being given out for free so the complaints have been oh the theater says this movie is sold out but when i go there nobody's in there so there's kind of a um a miscue usually it happens where this is a movie like it happened with um a flash for me. I was getting offers like in my email, like I got four different offers for free screening tickets for that movie, but three advanced screening tickets. Usually it doesn't happen unless they know that movie is not good, you know, to mm-hmm. give out free tickets that way and, and getting free tickets to these theaters, production company and studios have to pay that goes into the budget. So yeah, other than that, at number four, you know, drop down uh, two spots due to free ticket giveaways and the runaway success of Barbie and Oppenheimer is Mission Possible Gold Reckoning. Any other blockbuster weekend, it'd probably still sit at number two. Um, of course, Indiana Jones at five, Insidious Red Door at six, Elemental, which had amazing bounce back when it went global with its numbers. It's now Pixar's highest rated movie of the year as far as box office. Um, that sits at seven, Spider-Man Across the Universe at eight, Transformers at nine, and No Hard Feelings at eight. And that is your top ten for this weekend. Yeah. Uh, hey. So, quick news stories. First one is that AOC joined the actors and writers on the New York Picket Lines, and she said that this is a fight against greed. She also said, How many private jets does David Zaslav need? For real. <laughs> um, so, Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, she represents a district in New York. Can't remember exactly which one it is. Oh, join the picket lines for the um, SAG Friend Writers Guild of America strikes that are going on right now. Um, I think that it's very cool that she went to the strikes because, you know, unions have been like the backbone of American like society anyways, but also just like a really important thing to do, I guess, as a public figure to show support for these strikes. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I don't know if she's familiar with like all of the reasons that this is happening. Cause she was talking about AI and like how that this is a fight against AI. 
or and then she said it's a fight against greed um it's not it is, it is, it is. is very, but there's also like a lot of other things going on um and i it's interesting because i was watching a documentary a while ago about nancy pelosi and one of the people in that documentary was saying that you know alexandria ocasio cortez is like one of those politicians who's more like an activist politician where it's like they want to be seen doing good things and being seen being on the right side of history um which is wonderful i'm just like make sure that like when you're in the house of representatives like you're getting work done um because you know being like an activist celebrity politician is all well and good but I don't I don't want that to like impede and I'm not saying like this is not a worthwhile cause to be doing this for this is absolutely serious and I'm glad that she's out there doing it I'm just saying like I just I hope that she's just she's still doing the work and she's able to actually get things done where she is positioned because that's that's very important for the American people yeah <laughs> not just not just the actors and the writers um even though that this is also important I just it's just something that came into my mind when I saw the story. I was just like, I'm happy that you're out there. I think it's interesting that a lot of the A-list actors, a lot of whom signed that letter to um, make sure that they're getting a, a fair deal a couple of weeks ago, have not picketed. Um, um, so, and, and there's an article about that on Hollywood Reporter about like yeah. why they aren't doing it. And I completely understand their reasons for not doing it. Like, you can do a Dwayne The Rock Johnson and just donate money. I feel like that's probably where you're most effective is just yeah. making sure that these people have, like, <laughs> they're able to get their rent paid and they're able to have food on their tables. Like, that's important. Um, but it is interesting that, like, a lot of how the faces of Hollywood aren't actually showing up. They're saying that they're in solidarity, but they're not actually showing up on the picket lines. Um, but she is. Um, so... so to that response um so of course atlanta hollywood itself um and how the laws are arranged in atlanta or georgia being a right to work state where you don't necessarily have to be in a union to, to act and stuff like that is it was a lot of issues when it came to this riders and um sag the uh, sag afro strike um mm -hmm. so during last week when we had a break i had a chance to attend uh our yeah how should i say it um Ayawasi, um, those are basically the creative arts people side of everything. Editors, your set, your bonus scene, those people, my people. I'm not in the union yet. Well, I'm going to be hopefully I get the chance to be there one day. But had the meeting there, um, and we had uh, Fran Drescher had an opportunity to address us, basically um, the Atlanta film circle and industry there, um, and she was saying there ha there is an attempt by these um producers and these studios by just what you said oh instead of us taking pay cuts why don't you ask all the big name actors to take pay cuts and she said that logic is not fair because the the strike is not really about the actors like your tom cruises your you know right. your ben afflecks you know it's not about those guys it's about the guys behind the scenes like who mm -hmm. are are there as background who get small speaking roles who just don't show up it's there to help or people who work in tv is there to help them and so she's like i don't i'm not gonna 
critique them for not showing up on the lines because they're they're the engine that drives the industry. You know, mm. people people are people are going to watch these movies and these shows to see them. And because these people are going to see them, it benefits me because I'm in it and I have the opportunity to, to get paid or I have the opportunity to, you know, oh, that once that one scene where, you know, could be my breakout opportunity. You know, my five sec my five minutes on screen where I'm going one on one as talking with these stars could be the impetus where a director says, Oh, I see something in you to push me further. You know, like we mm-hmm. just said with Chile and Murphy, like, um, like Nolan said, he the, he the look on his eyes is what always inspired him. You know, with these characters. Um, so yeah, it's it's a lot. And she also spoke about the fact that um, they um, part of the they nego- Of course, over the week they've released their back and forth, everything that the um, the producers and studios disagreed with. Um, and mm-hmm. she also went on to mention that. Uh, because the model has changed, the key, one of the key issues they said is they want uh, part of the streaming revenue that these projects mm-hmm. get, and the studios did not want to budge. Uh, because yes, regi- the, the the residual model was working in the era, but the streaming has circumvented that. And so, like, fine if you're if you're not going to you know if you're not going to do residuals, at least let SAG Afro get a percentage of the residuals so we can pay and support these people the way they should and they didn't want to they don't want to budge it's yeah so mm-hmm. it's yeah. yeah still a long way to go yeah. um yeah um and continuing on that um of course uh uh so a labor day is a couple months away and that's probably going to be the key moment on what affects and how these studios go on forward a lot of these movies have already been shut down of course twisters venom uh deadpool 3 gladiator 2 i know um brad pitt's f1 movie they're still they're not doing any of the primary acting with um brad pitt and um uh damson idris but they are doing all the other scenes a bit i think there was a picture though of uh damson being high-fived by lewis hamilton after this past weekend's F1 race, because the character his character is supposed to win, so it's wait, kind wait. of a no- yeah. They're still shooting. How are they still shooting? I I don't know. So there's a a lot of gray area with it because um they did mention that before like uh, a twenty four. A lot of the independent studios have agreed to a SAG AFRA, and that's also another key sticker point in the strike going on. If a lot of the like. A24 is a big name, but it's not a big... It's not Paramount. It's not Sony. It's not, you so know... So is this film a A24 film? I think this movie is an Apple picture. But the fact that... So they can't be filming. Well, I think the fact that um, um, Damson uh, is filming, maybe because they did agree towards... um, They did agree with uh, Psych Afra's... Um, um, what they wanted. So they've 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 given uh, allocations to projects and studios that are willing to you know meet what they what the actors are are striking for. So it's a it's a weird it's a weird gray area. So there not every studio yeah, that, that doesn't sound like that, that makes it, sense to me. It doesn't from the outside, but it took a long time to figure out. There are a, a lot of the studios and production companies we see in the industry. A lot of them are not a part of. Um, uh, no, no, the I MTP. understand. 
I understand that part. Like, I understand yeah. that there's waivers that certain studios have yeah. signed. Like, A24, like you said, is not a part yeah. of the producer's situation, so they yeah. can still film. Um, or because if you shoot in London and it's a London or English production like House of the Dragon, yeah. you're still able to film because of the yeah. laws there. Okay, so I found the tweet. Um, it is a photo where it says uh, Lewis Hamilton is congratulations, Joshua Pierce, Joshua Pierce, who is Idris, uh, damsel Idris' character, yes, in a race. Um, but it also appears to be his stunt double, who, of course, is doing the driving and the F1 car. But Joshua Pierce is played by Damson, so it's uh, Damson's character win, but uh, uh, Damson is not there. Um, yeah, and also because the movie is on hold during the strike. Uh, but yeah, but I think if the movie was supposed to re-pick up back up next week, but of course with the strike, both Brad and Danson aren't going to show up. There we go. I think that's still wild that like they're able to film. I mean, even the they're, people because like, are using, they not union? That was one of the things they did mention for, uh, with the meeting here in Atlanta. Um, the stunt coordinator who they're I think they they have their own union, so it's kind of weird. Um, well, they're in SAG as well. Um, he mentioned um, not their stunt coordinator, but a person in charge of that the part division of SAG. Mm -hmm. He was saying when they were is talking about negotiating for stuff, um, he was like, "Oh, um, Hollywood, the produce uh, studios wanted to put the TV actors and the movie actors on different pay scales and different pay rates." And he was mm -hmm. like, "That logically makes no sense because we spend nine months shooting these." these streaming shows, even though they're only 10 episodes, we spend nine months shooting. Right. We spend nine right. months shooting these movies. We're both doing the same amount of work. Why you're trying to, to change the rates just because you now don't, you don't, you don't view the TV on par with your cinema stuff. So yeah. Very interesting. And most likely the actors they're using for, well, the actors and stunt people they're using in that movie are probably going to be a part of, the European version of of equity, union. yeah. Of, so they equity. can still work. Yeah. So okay. They, listen, they found a, they went to lengths to find a way around this. Like, that's really interesting to me. It's like just stop filming, like everyone else. Like, don't. Whatever. Sorry, I don't even think that's what your point was. You were still talking. Well, about no, I was. I was mentioning movies canceled, but sorry, we got on a tangent there. But I'm it sorry. is what it is. Um. But yeah. So. The deadline probably is Labor Day, um, and how it impacts movies coming up with the the next uh, release window for 2024, because most of the movies coming out later on this year are slated and done and done with. Um, we I know there have been some conversations as far as um, Wonka, uh, changing its release date, and of course, as usual, it's always Warner Brothers. They're trying to figure out and redo their release date and release date with Wonka and um, and Aquaman and stuff, but. Yeah, Labor Day is probably, you know, Labor Day is not, uh, you think people go shopping and stuff on like, um, Christmas, Thanksgiving, but Hollywood's major film day is Labor Day. And we're a couple weeks mm -hmm. away if that could remember Labor Day is September 4th. So this, this, if a deadline cannot be, or an agreement can't be reached between the actors, writers, and producers, like really the whole first quarter the second quarter or the whole next year is put into jeopardy because once this release slate is done for all these projects for the rest of the year that's it all the other movies that would have been released next year are still in 
different stages of middle production or post-production. And that means a lot of reshoots and ADR work, which if the actors aren't on set for that, they're everybody's fucked. So, yeah. Yeah. I read an article about the Venice Film Festival, and now that was completely thrown into jeopardy because of the SAG strike. So the movie with Zendaya and Luca Guadagnino, they moved that. So it was supposed to debut at Venice. It was supposed to open the film festival, and they moved it till next year in the springtime. And they're thinking about moving Dune. They're thinking about moving um, The Color Purple. So, like, they're already making plans to, like, not have these films be released this year because they're like, if your actors can't promote it, then there really isn't a point of releasing it. Not these bigger films where it's like, the money spent needs to be recouped. Like, you, we need the box office for it, and promotion drives that. So, yeah, I guess the studios have a lot of decisions that they need to make because time is running out. Like, they don't really have the time to play hardball here. Um, I think they think that they have the time, but they not only do they have the time, they have, they don't have the time, but they also don't have the money really to be doing this. Like they need to make some decisions and they need to make it fast. So anyway, that's our news. Moving on to some special, a little special segment for us since you're celebrating our four years. And we're celebrating it in the atmosphere of Barbenheimer, which is really cool. Um, I had some questions to be posed. <laughs> First question is, what, are, what is one of the things that you are most proud of when it comes to this podcast? The podcast in general. I don't know. Like, this is like, you know, between, you know, it's like three things. Uh, I think it's helped me develop a, a wonderful like friendship with you because you know we talk about stuff beyond movies you know like i said before like you're like my bonus sister um it's also like during especially during the pandemic you know this was one of my few outlets of stress relief you know when i was being trapped in the at home for like around the clock and my few times either going to see movies or you know getting access to movies by various different means and still being able to watch them and still being able to talk to somebody about them and sharing interests. Um, yeah, that, that's, those are, those, those take my major takeaways from it. And also I think I love the fact that if I Google the name of our podcast, like you just see all our work, like, I don't know, yeah. that's, that seems, that seems really weird. Cause you know, I, I don't, it's a bit of an ego thing. Everybody kind of Googles, Googles themselves. I'm like, Oh, I have nothing. But then if I, I, I say, oh, I have a podcast, Google, Google 60 minutes, like you go on images, all our episode artwork come up, you know, our website pops up. Every single thing, our, our podcast is available, every platform, they all pop up. And I, I love that so much. Yeah, me too. I'm really proud of like, one, that we're still doing it. Because yeah. I think one of the things that you said earlier to me when we first started was that, you know, like most people start podcasts, most people start podcasts all the time. Yeah. And they never follow through with it. Yeah. And the fact that we are four years deep (laughs) and we've, yeah, we've learned, we've grown, um, we've really figured this thing out. I think that that's, I'm really proud that we're still going because with all of the things that are in both of our lives that could have completely thrown us off and, you know, shut us down from doing it. The fact that we're still doing it. And the fact that I know I still really enjoy it. Like I 
I'm so glad that like I get to pour time and energy into something that I actually care about. Like the fact that I get to talk about movies and television and media and how it like shapes our lives is I'm really grateful for that. Like, and I don't take that for granted ever. The fact that like I get to do this and I know we're not like some big channel or some big podcast or whatever, but like the fact that we're still creating something and not just talking about it, like, to me, that's dope. Yeah. Um, and obviously for Dale. Dale is like, he's like the ace in the, I don't know. I don't, I don't play card games. He's like that one thing that you pull out, you know, when you feel like you. The wild card. Cards, the wild card. <laughs> oh, really? No, not the, not even the wild card. Just like the clutch card. Like the one where like, okay, I don't know how we're going to do any of this. He just boom, comes out with it. And you're like, oh, great. That's it. That's the solution. Like, the amount of times that you, like, for I will never forget the fact that you were, like, making fun of Chio's stuff, like, because of the Jamaican people and and they didn't get the accents right on, um, on Luke Cage and that we actually got an interview with him. Like, how did that even happen? Like, it's things like that. It's like, Dale always just comes in clutch. Like, he just knows how to get thing how to get to that like next place and i'm very grateful for that and for the friendship he is like my older brother <laughs> literally <laughs> um but yeah and i'm proud of like the fact that on youtube like things are growing and i'm yeah. so happy about that like that is wonderful it takes a really really long time to break through on youtube like it takes so long to break through but the fact that I can see that there is breakthrough happening, like that keeps me encouraged to keep going. Cause it's like, I know what this can be on another level. Like I can see it. And now it's like, and sometimes, and mostly it's like in your head, like you can't yeah. actually see it when it's happening. But then when you start to see it coming to fruition, it's like oh, very beautiful. Okay. So what's one thing that she wish you knew when starting the podcast? I think you kind of covered it. I think we kind of went in into it initially thinking it was going to be easy. Um, yeah. Like we said before, like people start podcasts all the time. Um, and the fact that a it's we're four years into it, you know, we have like almost 200 episodes or we're like at one, 190. Yeah. Well, I think this episode might actually be 200. Um, oh. But um, most people like quit. I like episode 10. Because they don't, they expect. Mm-hmm. Oh, I made a podcast. Show me the money. But we've been mm-hmm. on a constant grind. We've we've had highs with our distributor, and then distributors something happened with our distributor. We lost a contract because of the distributor, and you know, mm-hmm. and stuff happened. But yeah, I think now we're kind of on. A, and then also, COVID kind of destroyed every single plan that we 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 had for that you know yeah. that year. But you know, the fact that we're still chugging along, we're still we're still doing it, and we're seeing the growth on the Facebook side, which I think was the hardest component for us to have. But now like mm. with Facebook, like I will applaud you. Like you're, you're on it. Like, yeah, that's yeah. Are you mean with YouTube? Yeah. I mean, yeah. YouTube, like our YouTube success yeah. is like all on you. You know, it is. No, no. Um, yeah. What's one thing? Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be so hard <laughs> to be honest. Like, I thought it was going to be relatively easy and it, it really isn't like, it's actually incredibly difficult work. Um, like just even building a following, like 
that it takes so much energy. Like if you're trying to do it authentically, very hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wish I knew that it wasn't just going to be like, oh, we'll put out a couple of episodes and people will listen. It'll be great. Everyone will be super supportive. Like, no, it's, it really isn't like that. There's so much content out there and it takes a while to like push through all of that and like get people to be invested in not only like what you're talking about, but also who you are as like a personality. So yeah, I definitely wish I knew. I mean, maybe I can only find out by doing it. Maybe I couldn't have known it any other way. So, all right. So what was, or what has been your favorite episode? If you have one. My favorite episode. Okay. My favorite episode will be probably the one that's probably, Greta on the <laughs> Greta for some reason is our, our most successful uh, pod episode. I'm gonna, you know, of course, mm-hmm. plug that we got Barbie coming out next week, so go listen to our our Greta podcast. But I think my our, mm-hmm. my favorite one and the one that really clicked for us is the. I know you're with you being in um in kind of in Philly and Jersey right now. We don't have the opportunity mm-hmm. to go see movies together. But the first, yeah. ex- the advanced screening we went on for Knives Out together, like that was our first, like, oh, we oh, got yeah. we got access to a movie before before coming out to watch it, and mm-hmm. and then we watched it, and then the next day we recorded episode, and we were out with it before everybody else had seen a movie, like like most other podcasts have been out, and just the opportunity to go, oh, I saw a movie early that I could talk about it and have people listen to it like it might not have done a lot you know numbers wise but the fact that the opportunity like oh we saw it's our first time seeing a movie early you know felt good yeah that was actually great um oh i have so many i think one that will always stick with me is when we went to buckhead and we saw parasite and we saw the lighthouse at the same on the same day yeah we did that double feature that was actually really fun yeah i actually really enjoyed that um just because those movies were like (laughs) those movies were insane so it was just like what um but in terms of like actually talking oh there's been so many good ones that i really enjoyed talking about yeah I, i really like i really like when we watch a movie and then i i can't wait to see what your reaction will be like those are my those are my favorite ones when I'm like oh I can't wait to go on the pod and talk about this because I want to know how Dale felt about it like I know when we watched a movie like Decision to Leave I was really interested to see like what your thoughts were on that when we watched After Sun I was like did he cry I was I the only one who was crying <laughs> or like when we watched Coda like those movies that like I don't know oh I love our festival stuff so like whenever we do um Sundance or Tribeca those are kind of my favorites yeah. because it's like even though we can't physically be there just the idea that we get to participate because it's online um and then also that we are planning to actually go to these things like I actually love those yeah the Sundance ones are really were really special to me actually every time we get to do it I'm really happy so I mean I think now that I think about it now I think our probably our first five episodes might be our mm-hmm. favorite because it's just the, the 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 naivete of it all that we had mm-hmm. like we really mm-hmm. like oh we're just gonna record ourselves and then we're like oh what's not gonna be our intro stuff and then we had like masango and then so now if you go back like on youtube and try to listen to those episodes the intro music doesn't play because it's copyrighted music 
and like I'm still figuring out how to, you know, I'm not gonna say I'm the best audio person, but I was really raw, <laughs> really mm. really raw back then. But yeah, the, those and it was I think also like the first couple and then our last couple now, like mm. I, I like the the that initial naivete we had it because that's still fun. But now we've I can say we're kind of seasoned with it, but we still yeah like there was a change somewhere where we both mutually had a, like a down period, like you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. that exuberance and joyfulness has returned. So. Yes. I like that the journey of watching movies has also been kind of like the, our own personal journey of like dipping and going like through the pandemic, through our own like personal stuff, like it all kind of, and then it kind of came back around and there's an excitement and like a joy there. Yeah. It's fun. Okay, so what's one thing that you're looking forward to? Last question. Uh, festival season, you know, hopefully, like, yeah. not just, you know, you mentioned, you know, watching movies um, online, but, you know, particularly, like, you know, I, like, I'll do, like, Atlanta, Atlanta by myself, I'll go watch those movies, um, mm. but potentially, you know, hopefully next year, you know, now that we're out of our, our, our issues, still to potentially go to, you know, uh, Oh, we've spoken about going to Tribeca, like going there one day. Mm. Um, of course, you know, I mentioned before that I have the opportunity to see a movie that comes out next year with the writer strike might not happen, you know, because I mentioned how many mm. re- how many reshoots that that movie needs. But you know, <laughs> potentially having more of those opportunities to go see movies a year before they come out with you as well, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, those are the things I'm probably looking forward to the most. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the linked up wherever it might be again to go watch the movie because those were so fun like I loved like leaving work early and just going to the movie theater and just watching movies that was so fun and it's so funny because like this whole podcast started because we all couldn't stop talking about movies during work like we would just talk constantly about movies and watch movies at work don't do this at home or at we got our work done but like we got our work done but like that's what we would spend every single day doing so it's just it just made so much natural sense that this would be like the next step because it's like it's what we were doing anyways but um yeah i'm really looking forward to doing the festivals i really hope that one day we can go because i know there's a couple that we definitely want to go to i can't wait to go to toronto like if that actually happens oh god that'd be amazing like i that's a dream. Like if we get to Toronto, I'll feel content and be like, okay, I made it. Um, but also with YouTube, like being able to hopefully get a part of their peer program or whatever that is, where we can actually start getting some revenue from doing these videos and honestly doing more. Like there's, there's certain topics that we talk about on here that I would love to like dig into deeper. Yeah. So just finding the time, I'm really just waiting for money so I can get a proper camera so like I can set it up nicely so it would look nice to do or nice to look at as you're, as we're having kind of deep dive conversations about specific things like yeah, going a little bit more critically into some of these, the themes and stuff that we talk about on here. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that too and just for everything to continue to grow. I'm looking forward to it. I think I think that'll probably be beneficial because we kind of do like like today we kind of went up and off a tangent, but tangents are good. But at least know at least know if we have a game plan like when we're talking about this, like we can expound upon those topics later on down the line, particularly on YouTube, you know, or you know, 
if we make a Patreon, wink, wink, subscribe to the Patreon, you know, or, 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 you, yes. know you get, you get those kind of special deeds earlier, you know, so, but yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward this to this being my full-time job. That's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. I'm really hoping that that happens. So we'll keep working towards it and just super grateful that people are listening and care about what we're saying. Um, we're just two people on the internet. So like, thank you for taking the time out. Like you could be listening to anything else, honestly. So just thanks for listening at all and supporting us, even if it's giving us a little like or comment or whatever it is. Like, I, I'm really appreciative of that because this is, this means a lot to me and I know it means a lot to Dale too. So like, thanks. <laughs> so we hope that you're taking care of yourselves and having a great week. Make sure to check out all of our social media, support us if you can. Thank you for four amazing years and we will see you guys in the next episode. Bye. Au revoir.